This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Thank you, Ronnie. If, good morning, guys. My name is Jeff Heiser. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. It's so good to be with you guys today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4. And uh, we're in the middle of this sermon series that we've called Meeting Jesus, and we're looking at um, stories, particularly in the Gospels, when various characters encounter Christ, and what happens when they encounter Christ. And this week, our, our passage is a little bit different, and I'll tell you why. I've never been one for, for horror movies, but when I was in high, actually, like, I, I can't even really watch a good thriller, honestly. I just, I don't do it. And here's one of the reasons why. In, in college, me and my friends decided to watch Paranormal Activity 2. Now, like, this has ended up being a terrible decision for me, not just because I hadn't seen the first one, I didn't really know what was going on, but about halfway through the movie, I realized, hang on, this movie is about demon possession, and wait a minute, I actually believe in demons. And it was really freaked me out, right? I was like, oh no, ah, this stuff is real. And it's really, really terrifying. This is not a joke. And so uh, what we have in our passage today is Jesus encountering the devil. Now, we Christians, we believe that there is a real personal being that is behind a lot of evil in the world. If you think, I don't know if you guys have seen the Mission Impossible movies, but, you know, the Tom Cruise, right, as he gets into it, he realizes that there's this shadow organization called the syndicate that's behind everything that's going on. Well, we really believe, as Christians, that there is a real devil. That is, and this devil, the devil, Satan himself, comes to tempt Jesus, This is not just like some starvation-induced hallucination. This is real, and he's coming to tempt and to encounter Christ. Now, um, if you were with us this past Christmas season, you probably experienced, uh, maybe even for the first time, um, what part of the church calendar that we call the Advent season. Now, this is not something that you have to do as a church, but it's just something that we have decided to do because we think that it can actually help prepare our hearts and our minds to celebrate Christmas, right? So for a month leading up to Christmas, we are in the Advent season preparing ourselves to celebrate the coming of the Lord. Now, in about a month, there's another Christmas season that's meant, not sorry, not Christmas season, another church season, church calendar season that's meant to prepare Christians' hearts for Easter, the resurrection, and this is traditionally called Lent. I'm sure you guys know this word. And what we do, what you do during Lent, once again, not something you have to do, but um, Christians traditionally have resisted, have decided to take a break to fast from something for 40 days. Now, why 40 days? Well, the 40 days actually mimics this passage today, the temptation of Jesus by the devil. And so we spend 40 days, right? Jesus, so Jesus went without, and so we go without. You know, Jesus resisted temptation, so we resist temptation. And what is all this doing? Well, it's preparing us to celebrate his death on the cross as our substitute. And kind of in line with that, that's going to kind of be the guiding, the guiding ideas behind our sermon today. Just temptation, the temptation of Christ and our own temptations. And Christ, this reflection on Christ as our substitute. 
right? And so we're going to study the nature of temptation and the nature of our substitute. But let's go ahead and turn to our passage. If you would, please stand with me out of uh, reverence to God's word. And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 13. Hear now the reading of God's word. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands and and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is God's good word. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will abide forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So what is the nature of temptation? We're going to go straight back to our text because there's something we really need to, um, we need to notice here. And this, um, look again at verse 2. Do you see where it says, Jesus was in the, the desert for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during all those days. And then it says, whole sentence, and when they were ended, he was very hungry. This is something that struck me a little, as a little bit unusual um, as I was contemplating this passage this week because, you know, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. He did not eat for 40 days. And then Luke decides to take this time to remind us that after 40 days of no food, Jesus was hungry. And I'm kind of like, yeah, come on. Like, isn't, the par- isn't there a limited space on your parchment, Luke? But he makes sure to throw that in there. And now, we, gotta, we, we have to recognize, like, Luke was not just, you know, some primitive guy that made sure that his dumb audience was sure that after four, that, that's not what's going on. Luke is very, um, he's being very um, strategic in this because he's trying to draw our attention to something very specific, right? He's trying to take us to the point of pain in this story, right? And the point of pain is that Jesus was starving. And by getting us there, by taking us to that point of pain, he's actually going to teach us something about the nature of temptation because I think that we often think of temptation as just like the desire to do something bad, the desire to do something bad, but that's actually a little bit simplistic. You see, temptation never just drops out of the sky on us. It's never out of the blue. It always comes in this, in, out of a particular trial. And by trial, I mean just this Um, experience of weakness or pain, a perceived lack of something in our life, something we need, something we want, or problem we need fixed. And temptation always presents itself as the solution to that problem, to that trial. I don't know if you guys are techies at all, but um, there's this huge technology 
um, conference in Las Vegas every year called the Consumer Electronics Show. I mean, 150,000 people, multiple days, hundreds and hundreds of new products that are, that are they're trying to make their presence in the world known sort of thing. And I was reading this article this past week um, that I thought was super perceptive. It, it was called, the article was called, it was reviewing this, um, this technology trade show, and it was called Gadgets for Life on a Miserable Planet. And this is, what they, this is what the journalist said. Every time I stopped to talk with another company's smiling marketing representative about a progress monitoring yoga mat or a wristband that automatically logs calorie intake and hydration, something went unspoken. For these devices to have any future at all, people have to be pretty miserable. They have to be poorly rested, anxious about what they're eating, scared for the safety of their aging parents, alienated from all the natural responses of their bodies to get things such as food and physical activity. They need to be stressed out, under pressure at work, not spending their much time as they'd like with family and friends, and unsure of doing the basics of, that they're doing the basics of modern human life correctly. People have to be pretty miserable if these devices are going to work. And now, that probably doesn't surprise any of us at all, because marketing departments know how to get your attention. They prey on your misery, or your perceived misery, or the trials in your life, the lack that you feel in your life. You see, we're not... We're tempted by things that have the potential to fix a problem or a trial, now, these can be more, ser- you know, more obvious things, but they can also be a little bit more subtle, a little bit more under the radar. Um, if it feels like no one wants to be a good friend to you, trial, you're tempted to grow cynical, pessimistic, angry, right? Temptation. Seems like a solution. Close yourself off, Right? You feel out of control. You're tempted to turn to pornography to get, like, so you can be in charge of something, right? Problem, temptation. Whatever the trial is, that's what we can exp- that is where we can expect temptation, the temptation to try and fix it by any means necessary, whatever it takes. And Jesus is starving. 40 days, no food. And the devil comes and he offers him the obvious solution. Bread. Of course. Bread is the fix for, this, for the problem. But why in the world would Jesus say no to that? Why? When you're hungry, right, it's a good thing to eat. There's nothing wrong with eating when you're hungry. That's good. But here's the point. The things that tempt us are always perceived as good things. They always seem good. They always seem, that's why they're tempting. We're not tempted by things that don't make, like don't feel like they would be a fix to our problems. They're not tempting if they seem bad, right? But what's really going on here? Because it's not about the bread, right? Jesus' response is actually gonna give us a clue into what's really going on. Look at verse four. Jesus says, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, whenever you have an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, you need to turn back to where that is in the Old Testament so they can get the big picture of what's going on. Why this passage? Why this quote? 
And now Jesus is quoting, as we read in our Old Testament passage, he's reading, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God is reminding the people of Israel that he gave them manna so that they would learn that man does not live by bread alone. Does that make sense? What's manna? It's bread. So God gave them bread so that they would learn to live, learn to, so they would know that man does not live by bread alone. Right? This passage is not about, if I just have God's word, I don't need to eat. That's not what's going on in this passage, right? What, he's, what, what God is saying is he's saying, listen, it is through my declarative, like God's declarative word, his speak, his will, that I will provide for you. you it's not you taking your life into your own hands, like, I will provide for you. You don't provide for yourself. That's what God is telling them. And so now we see, going back to Deuteronomy 8, now we're seeing that what the devil is actually tempting Jesus with is not bread, it's self-reliance. It's self-reliance. He's tempting Jesus' trust in God. God's, he's saying, do you really believe that God can provide for you? Take matters into your own hands. You can do it. That's what's going on, right? It's not about the bread. Does that make sense? Now, to make the stones into bread would satisfy Jesus' hunger, but it would, rely, it would cause him to rely on himself, not on God. And so by resisting this, God, Jesus isn't just being passive or something, but he's actively pursuing and trusting God's will over his own. Let's look at verse 5, our next temptation here. He says, The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. Do you guys know that if you turn to Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul says that God has exalted Jesus above every name and every single knee in heaven and on earth bows to him. Who bows to a king? His subjects. So what Paul is saying is that, um, that God, Christ has been given the kingdoms of this world, and he deserves them. And so what the devil is saying is he's saying, go ahead and take them right now. You deserve it. And Jesus actually does deserve it. Does that make sense? But what's going on? The devil is manipulating, he's manipulating God's will. He's manipulating what Jesus deserves. And Jesus responds, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is not about whether or not Jesus does or doesn't deserve it. He does deserve it. But it's a question of who he serves. The devil, the de sorry, the, the devil is tempting Jesus to be self-serving, self-reliant, and now self-serving. Temptation says, you need to do whatever you need to do to get what you deserve. It's okay if it helps you get through the day. It's okay if it helps you be happy. But Jesus, he doesn't serve himself. He serves God, God's timing, and God's plan. So what is temptation? Temptation at its core is this desire to wrestle control of our lives out of God's hands. 
It's not about like bad things or good things or neutral things. It's, it's about the heart of temptation is the question, who do you trust? Even as you're going about maybe really good things, who do you trust? Who is in control of your life? And this is really important because we have this tendency to think that we have discovered God's will when things are going really well for us. Like I've heard friends, um, say, I've had friends say to me when they're reflecting on kind of big life decisions that, you know, things are going really well. Like I just feel really at peace about this. God is just really behind me in this decision. I'm sure of it because things are going so well. Now, the question is, if things were not going well, is God still behind them, those things? Is God still good? Is he still trustworthy if you're not at peace with the things that are happening in your life? How do you know? Like, is happiness proof of God's will? Is it really? You know, I think if we're honest with ourselves, I, I mean, it would be great if Jesus was like, you know, I think I will turn these stones into bread. And I'm, man, God is just really blessing me because I'm so full. Like, I'm not starving anymore. It's clear that God is blessing me. That's not what Jesus does. It certainly would be a lot more straightforward, wouldn't it? But temptation is complicated. It's much deeper. It is a heart matter. Not just I'm, like I'm tempted to steal and that's bad. No, it's much, much deeper. It's a matter of the heart. I had a professor in, um, in seminary, the first day of Greek class, he told us that some of us, for some of us, it would be a sin to get an A in his class. And for others, it would be a sin not to get an A in his class. What's he saying? Well, he's saying that for some of you, you will get an A because your priorities are all out of whack and it is an idol and you are neglecting your family or whatever to get an A in this class. But others of you, you will not get an A and you won't get an A because your heart is out of whack and you're lazy or you don't care about God's word enough. Or so. you, see what I'm, you see what he's saying? He's saying temptation, it's It's complicated. And results don't always tell you whether or not something is good or not, whether or not your heart is in the right place. And if this is freaking you out a little bit, that's okay. But this is your only hope. And this is why. Cecilia and I, we come from very, very similar families. We have very similar values. We, you know, both, we're only six weeks, weeks apart in age. We're very similar in a lot of ways. But of course, as you know, like when you get married, you realize that you have serious differences as well. And, you know, we have different styles of conflict. We have different, we, we see the world differently. And what, of course, that, that breed can breed is, well, it can breed conflict. But, a, but I know on my best day that I am really, really, really thankful that Cecilia is not exactly like me. Because then there would be two of me. And that would be horrible. No one wants that, especially my kids, right? So why, if we know that we don't want our spouse to be exactly like us, why would we want our God to be exactly like us? Do we really think that we know what we're doing, that we can govern the universe? No, that's absurd. It doesn't make sense. Why would we want our God to be exactly like us? You and I want a God who can challenge us, who, is, who has bigger plans than our momentary desires and felt needs. We want a God who knows what we need even when we don't feel it. 
That's what we want. Listen, all of us, every single person in this room wants a successful career, happy marriage, well-adjusted kids, uh, worry-free retirement and death in our sleep. We all want that, (laughs) right? But for many of us, God will not give that to us. And the question is, can we still trust God if he does not give us those things? And Jesus says, oh yeah, I'm ready to starve a little bit longer if that's God's will. He's showing us how far we can trust God, how far he's willing to go to show, to, to put his life in Christ, in God's hands. You know, in some ways, this third temptation is the icing on the cake. It is the hardest and most, prof- like almost profound temptation You know, Jesus has just told the devil that he is willing to trust God with everything. And the devil takes Psalm 91 and he says, you're willing to trust God. Well, great. Do it. God says this. Go for it. See what's going on there? He's saying, oh, you're going to trust God. Great. Let's do it. And Jesus does not bite. He believes that God is trustworthy and he doesn't even need to see it to believe that it's true. That's radical trust. Is our God worth trusting that completely? Well, I think as we turn to our second point here that we'll find that he is. Okay, so that's the nature of temptation. What about the nature of our substitute? Look at verse 1 and 2 again, right? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. That 40 days, I mean, that is really an important part. What's the significance of that number? Well, there's something very important that's going on at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, And if you turn back to the, he he is, um, yeah, if you turn back to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, what you'll find is that the, the people of Israel, they stood at the, at the door to the promised land and they did not trust God enough to go into it. And so God sent them back into the wilderness for 40 years. And now we have Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. That's important. What, you see, what Jesus is doing is he is reliving the story of Israel. But he's doing it perfectly. <laughs> Israel, right, he's resisting temptation when they could not. He's, he's trusting in God's faithfulness when they could not. He is achieving the, the role that Israel was supposed to bring, but could not and would not. And so what Luke is doing here, and what you can actually also see this in uh, Matthew and Mark as well, is that Jesus is, is becoming the substitute Israel, Right? Israel was supposed to do this. They did not. And so Jesus does it in their place. He's becoming the substitute Israel, the rescuer, the rescuer that they were supposed to be. He is becoming, he's showing himself to be the Messiah. But of course, it doesn't stop there. He's not just the substitute for the Israelites. Look at verse 13, the end of this passage. You see where he says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The Gospel of Luke, it's not just a stream of consciousness of stories that he remembers, you know, on the fly. He's a very skilled author that is doing something 
very specific. He knows what he's doing as he writes. And so there are themes, there are, there are like uh, foreshadowings, all these sorts of things going on in the Gospel of Luke, as in all biblical um, books. But what you, what you see here when it says, the devil departed from him until an opportune time. The commentators agree that it's referring to this other part in the, in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus was tempted three times. Do you know where that is? That's in Luke 23. Listen to this. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him. And the people stood by watching as the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, saying, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. And the criminal who was hanged next to him says, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This is the second temptation of Jesus. Save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. The the devil is tempting Christ again. And he could have, but why wouldn't he? Because he wasn't trying to save himself. He was trying to save you. You see, Jesus resisted the temptation to save himself on the cross. Why? Because he was dying the death that you should have died. And why did he resist temptation in the wilderness? Because he was living the life that you should have lived. Resisting temptation from the devil himself. You see, he's not just the substitute for Israel and their failings. He's the substitute for your failings, your life, your um, your giving in to temptation. We who don't do not, we who continually fail to trust God to provide, who continually take matters into our own hands, who continually look for the easy way out, often to our own detriment, detriment of others, Jesus stands in our place as our substitute. Is this God worth trusting? This is what our God will do for us. My parents go to a, um, another PCA church in South Carolina, and one of the members of their church is of Puerto Rican descent, and her parents spend the winters down here um, out on the West Coast. And so with all the, um, all the earthquakes, my dad had through connect, like gotten them my contact, and um, she called me. Um, this woman called me, and we chatted for a little while. I'd never met her before, um, but she said to me, you know, I told my daughter, this is the member of my parents' church, right? Um, I told my daughter that if one of these buildings falls on us, that was just the Lord's time, and so don't worry about us, we'll be fine. And I thought like, yeah, definitely, great, awesome. But then, you know, there's this, there's this Jackson Brown song, and in there he has a line that he says, don't remind me, what does he say? He says, don't confront me with my failures, I've not forgotten them. And that's like, that is how I feel when I heard this woman, because I think about my reaction to these earthquakes, which was 72, maybe 96 hours of like, at minimum low-level anxiety, right? I'm like praying and plotting and planning, and I have every, you know, escape, like I have everything worked out so that I can make sure that I'm good and my family's good. It's all perfect, right? And I'm just anxious, not sleeping well. Trial, what am I tempted to do? Take control of my own life. How do we get to the point 
We're in the midst of a trial, even a, honestly, the, even a small one in the grand scheme of things, right? How do we get to the point where instead of turning be, like towards anxiety or anger or control or these sorts of things, we turn to the Lord and to his trustworthiness where we lean and give our lives to the Lord and his goodness. Well, one of the things that um, I've been thinking about a lot the last few weeks is just the importance of memory for, m- memory for a Christian life. Um, Dan Allender, Christian counselor, thinker, he says, memory is the key to faith. You know, I think that we need a practice as Christians of reminding ourselves of the ways in which God has been good to us. Because if we don't, if we're unable to remember those things, we will, forget, we will not remember them in the times when it feels really bad. We need to know that we need to remember that God, the ways in which God has taken bad situations and we've seen ourselves grow as a result, turn back to him as a result, the ways in which he's blessed us with good things. Like these, like Christians need to be, we need to remember things and practice remembering them or calling them and telling them to our families and our, our children, ourselves. But of course, another way is that we can look back through history and see the ways in which God has worked. And actually, I think that Christ gives us the roadmap for that in this passage. In every instance, he quotes back to the devil. What does he quote? Scripture. And these aren't just like proof texts taken out of context, whatever. These are like, these are stories. They come out of stories of the remembrance of God's faithfulness to his people. In fact, the whole of Deuteronomy, if you read Deuteronomy, what is it? It is Moses reminding the people of Israel, look at what God has done for you. Look at how trustworthy he is. Do not forget. Remember. Sear this into your memory, into your children's memory. This is important. You must not forget. In every temptation... This is the word of God that reminds Jesus of who God is and what he has done. You see, God has revealed his character to us, certainly, faithfully, without uh, without fail, and it is in his word. You know, one thing we say, we say this is like a rhythm. I'm sure you barely even hear it anymore, but we say it in every sermon after we read the scripture. We say, This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will abide forever. This is not something you have to do in church, but it's it's something that we've decided to do because we want to remind ourselves that God's word is true and trustworthy, and it does not fade. God's word is a picture book of his faithfulness to his people. And how much more, how much more now that we can look back and see Christ substitute for us on the cross. Listen, this is why we need to know our, know our Bibles. It's not so that we can earn God's favor. It's not so we can figure out how to you know, like game our way into heaven. It's not so that we have more, um, you know, more checks than demerits or whatever, more gold stars. No, we need to know it because we need to know who God is. We need to know this picture book the storybook, backwards and forwards. And this is what will give us hope. This will get what will give us power to resist temptation, strength to trust in God, even when the result doesn't seem good or happy or we don't understand. We need to know who God is and what he has done. 
Jesus became a man. God himself became a man. And he resisted temptation for us. He died in our place, and he calls us to trust him. This is a God who will do anything. The Bible is the story of God going to any lengths necessary to redeem for himself a people and to give them what they truly need, which is him. And he calls us to trust him and to follow him and to know that he is good and that he loves us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I admit that um, I just, (laughs) I want my life to be smooth and easy. And I think that that is what's best for me. Lord, as we look to our Savior and we try to follow in his examples, Lord, his example, Lord, teach us. Teach us how to give ourselves to you. Teach us how to know your word and to remind ourselves of how good you are. God, we give our lives fully into your hands. Our, our sorrows, our sadness, our pain, and our joy, Lord, it's all yours. Do with us what you will. In your name we pray. Amen.